You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A'uz billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the Drive Time show today. Here, from here at Voice of Islam uh, Radio, um, where we bring you, uh, we often bring you two topics um, for four to five and five to six. Uh, today we're discussing uh, in the first hour especially grief and loss. Um, what impact does, does does grief and loss have and how to cope with it? We'll be speaking to four different guests today and, and, and getting the expert ad, 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 you know, ad, ad advice on emotions you know, during uh, grieving times um, uh, as well as other factors related to it. In the second hour we will be discussing Islam and the West, whether Islam, uh, this is a topic that's often brought up in, uh, you see it subliminally as well within the media, um, so as to suggest, and you know, especially with regards to the program that we've recently done on, on the World Cup in Qatar, um, where the way it's being presented that Islam is at odds with the West. The, the, there's a clash of civilization. So we will see uh, whether there's any truth to that notion. You're joined by myself, Raheel Ahmed, and Fahim Nasser today uh, from 4 to 6. We would love to welcome you here. Uh, come in whenever you want. Give us your 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 opinions, your uh, your what you think about these topics. And uh, that's it from us. And Fahim, um, the first hour, of course, we're discussing grief and loss. Um, yeah. Um, an important subject. Yeah, of course. Um, what what is it? Why? Why? I mean, are we discussing this topic? Why are we starting with grief? And yeah. yeah, someone would ask. We don't want to depress anyone right now, but it it is National Grief Awareness Week, mm-hmm. and you know, it's something that everybody has felt at some point in their life, or are going uh, to, or are going mm-hmm. to. But grief doesn't have to necessarily just be. Um, from death right it mm-hmm. could be from a loss of relationship it could be a loss of anything in your life right so i think that it's 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 so many things that we could really like understand about grief and i'd lo- I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about what islam teaches us about it mm-hmm. and how our very good guests today are going to explain to us um more about it and how it can how we can deal with it because right, at, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's about dealing with grief because everybody will experience it or has experienced it in some sort of uh, fashion. Mm-hmm. So we could all do with the advice, right? Absolutely. I mean, from uh, from the Islamic pr- perspective, of course, talking from the perspective of Voice of Islam, we always present you know Islamic pr- perspective to the subjects that we're discussing here. Um, you know, we know, and I and I remember you know being very young and and, and stuff. Whenever you know I had lost something, my parents would say. They recite a special prayer, oh. uh, you know, where to Allah we belong and to Him we return. And we're yeah. thinking, why, why, why? I didn't really understand the, the concept of it. Then you grew up to understand that, you know, there's there's a, there's a specific verse in the Holy Quran. Uh, you know, um, this is, uh, you know, where where, where Allah, Allah, Allah the Almighty tells us uh, 
that he will try us, you know, with, with, with something of fear, hunger, loss of wealth, lives, you know, and, and, and there's other things that I mentioned there. But, but he says, give glad tiding, um, you know, to those who are patient, yeah. you know, in, in, in times of difficulties. Um, and then he says, and then it continues, the verse basically says, and I quote, who when a misfortune overtakes them, say, and then the, in Arabic is, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon, surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. It is these on whom are blessings from their Lord and mercy, and it is those who are rightly guided. Now, the interesting thing is, and I think um, from an Islamic perspective, um, the understanding of this, I think, is, is a lot deeper than uh, when we say, to Allah we belong and to him we return. What, we, what we're basically saying is, we don't, we don't consider this life to be uh, be all and end all of, of, of all things, yeah. right? Um, and that's why I think people of faith are there are studies out there better at dealing with stress mm. and and anxiety and also you know things such as um, grief and loss yeah. because i mean uh, for instance even to an extent of someone being killed right um, there 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 is a concept of martyrdom in islam which is looked upon mm. as as something uh, you know it's 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 one of uh, one of the signs of a true believer, or is something that a, a believer basically prays for, uh, you know, there in, in there is a verse in the in, in the Holy Quran where where, where it specifically speaks about four ranks, right? Yeah. Um, that uh, that whoever obeys Allah and His Messenger, they will be among those who are the prophets, the truthful, was shuhada, the martyrs, was yeah. uh, and 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 the righteous. So these four ranks that that are there. Yeah. And and it's something that's not small, you know, dying in the way of Allah. But but, but you realize, and, and and when you study the life of the Prophet, you know, in in let's say defensive uh, expeditions, where these companions, you know, have given up that, you know, they've died for for the sake of, for the sake of their religion or faith, mm-hmm. how their you know their family responded, or the, yeah. or, or there's numerous incidents, especially by his, you know mentioned by His Holiness, uh, you know, in 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 his sermons. So, for instance, there's one incident um, that a mother, when she find, found out that her husband and her, and I think her her son passed away, or, or you know, died in in, in that battle. Um, so they they came to her, and she was very worried. She was look, look, looking around, and they asked her what. Uh, I mean, they told her that your your son's passed away. She goes, she said, basically said, you know, like when Rajun, right? To to her husband as well, and I think it was his brother. It was her brother as well, if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Well, so she lost. You know, uh, three very close three very relatives. close people from a family, two or three, right? Just just to not make uh, make a mistake there. But she said, "I am why I am so worried at this moment, and I'm looking for the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. How is he? Mm. I have no concern for my, uh, you know, for my for my son, for my father. So this concept, it's you know, from from our perspective, perspective, it's kind of understandable. Mm. But from some from outside, it's it's very difficult to kind of explain." But that, that that how how that individual at that time who's lost you know the closest members of the family has got someone dearer to to her than than her husband brother and and you know and her uh, brother or you know which is the holy prophet peace be upon him so that tells you that 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 when we say we belong to Allah that that that, that we feel that of course uh, talking about about a body it's we believe that there's a body and a soul hmm. uh, you know soul departs this 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 world the body uh, ceases to exist but yet that that is not the end and the soul returns to allah your soul returns to his creator and it is a uh, question on things that he has done and of course it, it, 
um, you know, those who have done good deeds, those who have been, you know, righteous in in in, in, in this life, in 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 their in 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 their qawl, meaning in what they say as well as they act, would be would be rewarded. So I think Definitely. that's the that's the understanding of I think um, of from an Islamic perspective why. Um, you know, uh, why and how? I mean, the question of uh, how we deal with grief and loss. Yeah. Um, of course, it's difficult times. Uh, and, and there's one interesting thing I should mention. It, it is not to say that one should become cold. And there's an incident from the life of the Prophet. And it says when Hazrat Ibrahim, his son, because all of his, his sons uh, passed away, uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, right? Yeah. In his lifetime. So he was, um, when his son Ibrahim passed away, um, there's, in a narration, it is said that when he was burying him, he, he went into the grave put him down and he started to weep hmm. and you, you could see tears flowing down from his you know cheeks so one of the companions basically said oh, oh messenger of Allah are you going to be impatient as well and he said this is not impatience this is a mercy from Allah hmm. and it's interesting when I looked into this how is it a mercy a man who can't show his emotion hmm. or it's you we think oh he's a strong man he's not a strong man hmm. if we know that when we keep emotion inside Right when we keep it inside, yeah. how much it burdens us. Hundred percent. Right, letting it out actually, you know, it's it's sort of a mercy for ourselves as well. Mm. Right, you, you and share, you know, we talk about mental health and all these things, sharing it with others yeah. and expressing yourselves. How that takes off that load, and that's the very essence of prayer as well. When you're yeah. praying and you're you're weeping and 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 you're presenting your problems to God, I think that's the whole whole concept. Yeah, um, no, that's really interesting because I think that. Um, Often, maybe people are thinking, right, like, because, you know, we're starting off with National Grief Awareness Week and people are thinking, do we need a whole week for this? Mm. But why don't we give the listeners some context, right? Because, yep. you know, some people could just say, hey, isn't it just something that you want to, you need to just get on with or get over it? Um, but, you know, people generally, you know, you've mentioned that people who have religion may find it easier, but there are people who may not know how to deal with it. And just to give some context, especially... Um, 26,900 parents die in the UK every year leaving young children and that's that equates to one parent every 20 minutes so if you if you let that sink in for a second mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there dealing with grief yep and and as we mentioned at the top of the show grief isn't just about loss of uh, a family member or someone you know and especially during COVID times you know but when when children could not, you know, be there at their parents' funeral. funeral yeah. or know, one thing is losing them, and the second thing is not being able to attend it, you know, yeah. to, to be able to, you know, pay their respects or, you know, you know, last meeting with, you know, with their, with their loved ones. So it's, it's huge, and I think that, that does impact people a lot. Because Definitely. when you're meeting others, there, there is a sense of sharing that grief, if you get what I mean, yeah. As you were saying earlier, you know about letting it out. Yeah. So yeah, there's that aspect to it as well. Yeah, and you know, loss of someone you know, can make adults feel vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we actually found that the the UK Commission on Bereavement in 2021 found that 74 percent of bereaved people were not accessing the mental health services available to them. So mm-hmm. they're not even dealing with it. So that's why something, why why this subject is important to discuss. Why, mm-hmm. you know, there is a week dedicated to it, and um, it's it can be felt over. You know, it could be a job, it could be a relationship, it could be a pregnancy, this a pet. Like there's so many things. I think 
where I relate your point earlier was that I I found that any sort of grief that I've faced, I felt mm. um, I felt that I've understood um, my purpose in life. I think that that's always been one thing to help me with grief and mm. to understand that you know. And then you know you always get that phrase where people say uh, things like that person that you lost would they want you to be upset would they want you to s- like spend the rest of your life mm, like missing state. them or just stay in that state yep. like, you're not going to stop missing someone yep. but like ultimately like I think that that's I think that's where Islam kind of gives you that purpose and says hey you know there's there's more to life there's um, you know this is a temporary life for all of us and there is a there is an afterlife and you know with, with that I do want to share something, something personal this is from a family member right um so basically, we know how the community is treated, in, especially in Pakistan, the persecution and all. Yep. So, um, so w- w- within our family, someone told me that you know their father uh, and brother were basically killed, martyred, right? Of course, and and she couldn't get over it. That lady, you know, that her father and, and the way they were killed as well was horrendous. I mean. Mm. Y- y- um, you can't go into the detail of it. Um, so she basically said that she, you know, she couldn't come out of grief, and she was having these panic attacks and all these things. Mm-hmm. And then one day, her father and brother came into her dream, and they basically comforted her and said, "Look, we're we're fine, and and we're being rewarded by God for what we've given in this life, right? In in terms of sacrifice." So that basically, you know, uh, in in a way, uh, gave, gave her, her that peace. you know solace and mm-hmm. gave her that peace. So you know, there's that incident as well, and I think as as you're saying, I think that's a very interesting point, uh, an interesting way of look, looking at it. Would that person that's a, that have gone right now, mm. uh, you know, have have left this world, would would want you to be in that state yeah. for for the rest of your life? Of course, no. Mm. Um, with that, of course, we will be going to our first guest. Um, we do have on the line uh, Litza Williams, who is a co-founder. Of what's your grief? With a short introduction, Assalamu alaikum, a peace and blessings of God be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for giving us your time and coming on. Um, we're discussing grief. Um, um, you have, you know, considered how anxiety can actually affect, uh, you know, one's grieving on your website. Um, you know, what's your grief? Uh, could you could you explain how a traumatic death can actually trigger this anxiety? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think this question, it, understanding the nature of anxiety, is really helpful to understanding where it intersects with grief, because anxiety at its core is really about our uncertainty about the world or our fear mm-hmm. that we can't predict the future. And when we experience traumatic death. So often they are things that we couldn't have anticipated. They're things that we never imagined would happen. And it really exacerbates that fear that we already have about the uncertainty of the world and the unpredictability of the future. And so for a lot of people, especially if they were already predisposed to anxiety, Mm -hmm. losing someone who they didn't expect to lose in a traumatic way that they never could have imagined really reinforces to them that they don't have control over things in the world. And so it can make grief even more complicated and then it can make their anxiety even worse. Right. And so in, in what sense do you feel avoiding grieving actually prolongs it and or makes it even harder? 
Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people, especially early in grief, when the pain is just so intense and so overwhelming and the feelings are, feel like they're unmanageable. A lot of times people's go to way of coping will be to try to avoid their grief. And it makes sense that people do that. You know, you've got to get through the day. You've got to go to work. You have Mm. to take care of your kids. We feel like the most practical thing to do is to try to avoid it and and push it to the side. Ultimately, what we see, though, is that for many people, you can't avoid forever. And so what tends to happen is that that grief starts to come out in other ways. It gets displaced. We start having maybe stressors that we would otherwise be able to manage are now too much for us, either at work or in our personal relationships or in other ways, or we start to have anxiety about other things that we don't realize are connected to our grief because we haven't really spent time trying to understand our grief and process it. So what we find with people is it's not that you never avoid. We Healthy avoidance is actually important. We need to take breaks in our grief. We can't be feeling the depths of our pain all the time and it it's great to get some distraction and avoid sometimes but we need to be tending to it doing the work with it processing it so that it doesn't end up coming up for us later in ways that are even more damaging mm-hmm. very interesting and you know people actually you know people who are experiencing uh loss often say things as uh you know you never think it would happen or how much does grief change a person's outlook of the world? Um, you know, what, what what would you say on how much does grief change you know a person's outlook of the world and make them more cautious? Yeah, I, I think often when people say you know you never think that it would happen, really what they mean is I never thought it would happen to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought things like this happened to other people. It happened to other families. Um, oftentimes, one of the things that is so devastating about living in the world after a loss has happened is that it shatters our assumptions about our safety. So suddenly we realize that bad things can happen, Hmm. not just to other families, but to our family and to our loved ones. And once it's happened once, we then ultimately feel like what's to say that it's not going to happen again? What's Mm -hmm. to say that it won't be another one of my loved ones that this happens to next? So we know that finding ways to cope with that uncertainty, to realize that it is true that these terrible things can happen to to any of us. And part of living a life after loss is Mm -hmm. saying, how do I learn how to cope with that uncertainty and still be able to feel safe, feel like my loved ones are safe and still make new connections and do things in the world and not be controlled by that fear or that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so could you, because there's a fine line, right? Could you explain how grief may lead to depression or PTSD? Um, could you tell our listeners like how to understand it and, and no, notice it? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think before getting to those things where it can be problematic and we need more support, I think it's important for people to remember that grief itself is not problem to be solved. It's not a pathology. It's not a mental health diagnosis. Grief is just our normal and natural human response to loss. It's what we go through anytime we lose someone or something that is so incredibly important to us. And it's always going to involve those deeply painful emotions and the struggle of trying to figure out how to live 
day to day. What we know, though, is certain types of losses can make you more predisposed to something like PTSD. So people who lose someone in a way that was traumatic. I heard you talking a bit before I came on about someone whose loved ones may have died in a way that was traumatic or violent or suffered, and they may have worried about that. We know that's something that puts you more at risk for trauma is that you feel like you're reliving, even just imagining what they went through, even if you weren't there. So people often think that we can only experience post-traumatic stress if we were present and witnessed a traumatic event. But we can actually experience it even from just imagining that. And so what we know about trauma is any time that our brain sort of gets stuck in that past acute stress mm-hmm. of um, the loss itself, that we're more predisposed for trauma. It can happen if we feel like our loved one suffered even from a significant illness. Mm-hmm. So looking out for things for, with post-traumatic stress like hypervigilance or having flashbacks and nightmares, feeling like every time you think about your loved one that you can't think about any of the happy memories, but instead all you can focus on are the way that they died or um, things that went wrong at the end of their life. Those are all things that maybe you should talk to someone to see if post-traumatic stress might be a component of your grief and something that you could work with a counselor or a therapist on. Depression is a little different. You know, depression is is sometimes tricky because people Mm -hmm. confuse it with grief because a lot of times after a loss, we feel helpless and we feel hopeless and we can't imagine how our lives will be meaningful again without the person that we loved and cared about so much. And so that might make it hard to have the motivation to get out of bed in the morning or to be motivated to get things done at work and take care of ourselves in the way we did before, which on the surface can look a lot like depression. Um, But with grief, what we know is often it is very focused on the absence of the person who died. Mm -hmm. With depression, it is when it starts to spread into all other areas of our lives where we feel like we can't experience any joy in any other area of our life, Um, even our children or our friends or things that once brought us joy, that even as the months have passed and maybe we're six, nine months, a year out from that loss, we're Mm -hmm. finding that we can't reconnect in any way with any things that would bring us joy you know that's something where you then might want to Mm -hmm. talk to someone it's an indication that maybe that grief has started to trigger an episode of depression and that again a counselor might be able to Mm -hmm. uh, help help with some of the processing of that and figuring out what is grief what is depression and how to cope very interesting, and thank you so much. That's all from us. It, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, thank you for giving us your time. Take care. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. 020-868-77878 is the number to call. And maybe give us your opinion uh, on this uh, topic of grief and how you know uh, one can deal with it. I think one of the things, and it's a very interesting thing that we, you know, we, we, we kind of understood is, you know, not expecting it to happen to you. 
right? Yeah. You know, we, we we often see it around us, you know, um, friends of you know distant families and you know stuff like that. We um, we we pay our condolences, you know, we visit them and all these things, but it doesn't really hit hard in a way that you know someone like your, f- your close family member when yeah. when they when when they pass away. And I think that's um, so. I think that expectation or you know that that's the thinking in your mind of it's not going to happen. And I think one of the things that's interesting from an Islamic perspective is um, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, you know, once said, um, uh, he said, remember often the destroyer of pleasures. By 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 that, of course, he meant death. And we find that in, because death in Islam is not looked upon as something negative. Mm. I think that's something that needs to be understood. Because, Definitely. you know, another p- person, not particularly about death, but he, he said, when is when is the judgment day which, which comes after death or when one is and the prophet peace be upon him said what well, have you prepared for it yeah right so so i think it's, it's the way of look looking at things um and uh, um because that transition is going to happen no doubt no, no matter how we think about death it is going to happen and i think one of the things that and one of the and, and i think another thing that that might be the case of uh, you know might be the case of this this grief is 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 one's idea that they're never going to see that person again. Hmm. If you get what I mean. Yeah. Whereas from an Islamic perspective, that's not true. You know, we, 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 you know, we believe that this, this, this is possible. If of course both are both have been righteous, both have been because of course there are ranks in in heaven hmm. as 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 well, right? Um, yeah. So from that perspective, I think this is something that's not looked upon as as something that's uh, negative. Yeah. So I. I want to go back to your point about um, the Holy mm-hmm. Prophet, peace be upon him, saying um, often think about death. Yeah. Essentially, I think that remember that's, it. Yeah. yeah, to remember it, right? To like even on special occasions like Eid, like going to the graveyard, right? Um, he also, so, yeah, he also said visit the graves. Uh, it, it it reminds you of the hereafter. Meaning, yeah. look, it 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 just it just distracts you from this world, this 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 ongoing pursuit. Of, we've talked about it. Well, the, this world distra- this world distracts you, right? It, exactly. it ultimately, this feeling of oh, why uh, or this wasn't supposed to happen to me, or how did this happen to me? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's happened to other people. It's because you're so focused on your day to day, you've not realized that ultimately death you've is. Been, you death have invested is, uh, exactly. You have invested everything, every ounce of your energy yeah. into this world in in making this in making this whatever way possible. Your your plans of let's say twenty years ahead, your family, your kids. You yeah. you you, you want to see them get married. You wanna you wanna have a better job. You 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 know you want to be able to, you know. Um, own a house and all, all of these things you've got these plans in place and all of a sudden bang yeah you know but a terminal illness or something like that hits and you're like and it just it just shatters that person and those that are around them yeah because you know how, how people say that and, and I'm not saying that you know it's not it's not easy to think this way but if you think about it the only thing that is certain in life is death mm. mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. it's the only thing that you know will definitely come yeah at some point so I think that that's where you can kind of flip your thinking and, and I think that's why it's very logical for the prophet to answer in a way that he did it's, mm. in, it's, it's 1400 years ago He's, he said what have you prepared for it Yeah, I think that's <laughs> the that, that answer yeah because you don't know what job you're going to have you don't know where you're going to live you don't know what like all these things are completely and, and of course that's not to say don't work for it you should yeah. work for it you should you should invest in yourself and you, of course you shouldn't delve on because 
a thing is just the acknowledgement. You've got to, you've got mm. to acknowledge that this thing exists. Remember, remember exactly. Right? Yeah, you, you've you've got to remember it. You've you've got to have this. You know, part of your um, what's the word? Part of your thinking. You yeah. know, pondering over. You know, um, we think about different things, and I think unconscious, unconscious. But con- this is about conscious thinking. That that this is something that's going to happen. It, it could happen tomorrow. It mm. could happen. What have I done? And, and, and especially, what am I leaving? My, my impression on, on people. Because I think one of the things thing my, my dad often says is, is, and he says, he goes, one of the, he goes, they would ask, what have you earned, right, in, in this world? One is, is with regards to your, your you know, we always speak about rights of God. Yeah. You know, God will ask you, what have you done in terms of worship and all these things. But another, another big factor is what, how you've treated fellow human beings. Yeah. And also, what mark have you left on people? Right, what legacy? As we speak about, what legacy have you left behind? And if you haven't added something to people's lives, then don't take from it or don't don't add negativity to it. Right? If, if you get what I mean. Definitely, I I kind of um, I've, I've I've had this conversation with quite a few people when they felt a bit lost because mm-hmm. what I've what I've often asked is when you when you die, what do you want people to remember you as? Mm. And I think if you actually sit there and think about, okay, how do I want to be remembered by the people that after my I'm gone, mm-hmm. you start to change the way you act. And I think that that's where the Holy Prophet Sallallahu wisdom comes, mm-hmm. where he's saying that often think about that, okay, you're, go- you're going to leave this world. Mm-hmm. Remember that and act accordingly. How have you prepared? How have you prepared your future generations? How have you prepared... Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you something that's very interesting. I think when when one does think about that, right, mm. in, in in a way, you realize what holds more importance from a from a from, from a person of faith's perspective, right? Something that's that transient, you you, you know, transient. You're going to move from here, mm. right? The importance comes into you know your priorities would come into yeah. in, into play. Well, right? it's like if if you God forbid found out that you had cancer and you had six months to live, right? How would, how would you start living? How yeah. would you start changing your life, right? And it's like you shouldn't you shouldn't have to wait for that opportunity because ultimately you know that death is coming, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And and this isn't to to have a very depressing show about how we're all gonna um, die, but um, I think we have our next guest on the line. Yeah, we have uh, Dr. Chao Fang, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Yes. Who is a visiting research fellow at the Centre of Death and Society at the University of Bath. Asalaamu Alaikum. Uh, peace and blessings of God be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. I'm great, thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, of course, we're speaking about uh, you know, grief grief, and, 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 and loss and how to basically deal with it. But what we want to ask you, uh, you know, our first question to you was... Um, of course, during the first wave of pandemic, you know, you looked at how people made symbolic bonds of shared grief. Um, could you kind of elaborate for our listeners on these bonds and uh, and and were they just restricted to the grief stricken? Yeah. So during lockdown, I I, I conducted a, a study with my colleagues, basically to analyze uh, the narratives from the news outlets to understand people's experience experiences as grief. And what we have found is, you know, many people, they have used very creative means to create this kind of symbolic bonds to deal with the grief in a very collective manner. And I think a good example about this kind of symbolic bonds was, I think probably some of you have uh, uh, still remembered, as from the very early stage of lockdown, mm-hmm. many great families, they put a yellow heart 
uh, in the front of their house as a way to express your grief and also as a way to to, to, to seek support from the wider society. Mm-hmm. So it's in that sense, you know, symbolic bones uh, were created by brave people in the circumstances of, of severe restrictions so that, you know, people uh, could access uh, you know, social resources and, and, and support uh, in distance as a way to deal with, deal with their grief. So that's how we found, you know, the brave people who created symbolic bonds during the lockdown as we to deal with their loss and grief. And to your second question about if symbolic bonds are only grief-driven, I think the answer might be no. But again, I think grief is a very good kind of example to show how people they can be creative in terms of creating this kind of symbolic bonds to deal with challenges in their life. And I think that in the same time, we can see symbolic bonds in other circumstances. For example, the most recent example is World Cup. You know, people they sing their national anthems in the stadium, in their living room. People they wear the football uniforms. Mm-hmm. In a sense, you know, the football fans they create a kind of symbolic bond uh, as a way to show their uh, uh, support collectively, as well as uh, as a way to 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 confirm their sense of belonging to their country. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, I think symbolic uh, symbolic bonds are not. Not all, always uh, grief-driven, but grief is a very good example of uh, this kind of symbolic bond. And so, h- how did the lockdown restrictions affect the grieving process <coughs> of families who had lost loved ones? Yeah, I think if we think about what happened during the lockdowns, and I think what we faced was the severe restrictions. So, in that sense, many brief families they were unable to attend their loved ones dying bed, and many people they were unable to attend funerals. So in a sense, you know, people have missed a lot of precious, precious moments, spend time with their loved one and to spend time with family and communities as a way to deal with their grief. And that's why the lockdowns could have significant impact on people's grief in terms of how people they can better understand their loss and to, to try to live with their loss in their ongoing, uh, uh, ongoing life. And, and I think a lot of studies have looked at the impact of lockdowns on grief. And many studies have suggested that, you know, uh, lockdowns and other restrictions can be a significant contributing factor uh, to mental health challenges as well as complicated grief. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think, you know, lockdowns, of course, lockdowns and restrictions uh, can fundamentally restrict people's uh, experiences as well as people's ability to deal with the uh, grief, both during grief and be, uh, both during the lockdown and also beyond the lockdown. Okay, and you have also you know suggested that some people ex- uh, you know experienced a good death um, during the yeah. lockdown. Could you explain how? Yeah, and that was kind of very surprising findings for our analysis. And when I'm talking about good uh, good death, I'm not suggesting you know losing a loved one during lockdown was a positive thing. Rather, what I mean about the good death was you know. A lot of people had very positive experiences of dealing with their grief during lockdowns. And again, if we think about lockdowns, restrictions were, were a kind of prominent challenges many people had to face. And that's why many people had very bad or negative grief processes. But in the same time, if we think about what happened in the lockdown, we have seen increased levels of family interactions community support as well as the wider social solidarity 
So in a sense, you know, a lot of people, they were able to access the higher level of support and understanding, not only from their family, from their communities, but also from the wider society. So, for example, the, the Yellow Heart Movement was a very good example how people they could you know, access the increased support during lockdowns as well to achieve some positive experiences about their grief. Right, and in what sense do you feel that um, memorials help with the process of collective grief? What kind of memorial would be fitting for the pandemic? Okay, I think the memorials are a very good kind of platform. You know, the brave people, they can come together to first to, 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 to collectively show their grief and secondly to, to collectively to, 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 to seek and, and to exchange support for each other. And I think a, a quite good example about how memorials can help a collective grief was the Queen's death and, and the national mourning period. You know, when, mm-hmm. the, when the Queen died, you know, a lot of people were affected in many different ways. Yeah. And that's why the National Morning and the Step Funeral created a kind of very unique platform for people, not, from, not only from your family, also from, uh, from, uh, for the people from all, all over the country, or all, all over the world, to come together symbolically to pay their respect to the Queen and also to find a way to, to show their grief so that they can better understand their loss and their emotions as a way to help them to move on. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I mean, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for giving us Thank your insight. You Thank pleasure. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 020-868-7878 is the number to call us on. Um, we're discussing loss and grief, how to deal with it. Um, um, so one of the things that, that we, were, we haven't yet discussed um, is... I mean, I think we have discussed it, but 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 just to delve on it a bit more longer, mm. uh, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is holding us, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the Promised Messiah, agreed, uh, you know, in on you know how to dealing with stress and and um, you know not actually delving upon uh, this uh, the, this feeling of despair, guilt, loneliness, and 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 grief. He said the reason uh, he said he basically explained that the reason grief is more acute because it is it is so close to love. And he says, he says, one can easily understand that when a person is separated and distanced from that which they love, they are overwhelmed by grief and throbbing anguish. This, this issue is not only a theory, it is a logical fact. As Allah the states, it is Allah's kindled fire which rises over the hearts. Uh, and so it is this very fire of, uh, of the love of all that is besides Allah which burns a human heart and turns it into ash, subjecting it to a shock, punishment and, and pain. So so much so 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 too much grief can also be damaging one 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 needs to understand and but but i think that this this is why our first uh guess was explaining how you can you know access help because normality mm-hmm. is that you know time heals right over over time life has to move on worlds you know worlds too circling right yeah. S- things have to but, but there, there are certain people who can't get out of that grief and loss and I think this is where they should seek help um, yeah and, um, I just want to bring up the uh, the revelation uh, of the founder of the uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community when his father passed away as well right mm. um, is God not sufficient for his mm. servant it's a verse of the Quran actually yeah Yeah, and um, that that f- for me, I think has always been a good reminder um, of understanding. Okay, there is someone beyond uh, the 
the very important people in your lives. Mm. There's someone who will outlive them, who will always be there no matter what. And I think that that is a great way to yes, deal with grief. Personally, mm. I think that it's it's something that can really help because you understand, okay, there there, there is more. And there's always going to be that consistency because ultimately mm. you don't know when people will leave your lives or enter it. Yeah, that, that, I think that's very deep. I think no, no, no matter how much we we discuss this topic, we could actually spend two hours just discussing it. This topic mm. is 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 very, 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 uh, very, very interesting. Um, and so I think I think it's uh, it's not as as you were saying earlier. It's not something that that we negatively look upon. You mm. know, grieving is. As I said I gave the example of the Prophet himself. You know, uh, who was you know crying at the time of the death of his his his, his son. So so crying is not something that's. That you know to say that someone's impatient or something. It's it actually helps you know in a, in a, in a, in a way. Um, but the Prophet Sallallahu you know, also uh, you know, speaking of the Prophet Sallallahu um, by Prophet Sallallahu we mean Hazrat Mirza Ghulam and the founder of the Muslim community. He also described how you know a sympathy uh, you know towards others, uh, you know, grief helped bond him with the community. And he said this sympathy is so burning that when I receive a letter from anyone of my friends alluding to a grief or illness with which they are suffering my disposition becomes restless and disturbed and I'm taken aback by grief. As our day ones increase, this grief increases in equal proportion. There is no hour in which I am free from some form of apprehension and grief. Wow. <sighs> because from among the vast number of my, my, my friends, one or the other is afflicted by some form of grief or pain. When they inform me of their worries, my heart becomes perturbed and restless. I cannot describe the amount of time that I suffer from worries. Um, this is this is um, this is interesting because very recently I came across I think the diary of um, Abid Khan Sahib, who's the press secretary, right? Yes. And one of the most, uh, you know, one of the things that were highlighted in in that is I think he, he uh, there's there's a statement of His Holiness where where he said something along the lines of. You know, you, because Abisab is someone who sees his holiness on a quite regular basis, yes. and he says, "You see me." He asked Azul, "How are you?" Right? And I was just, you know, you normally we would yeah, ask, as "How you, you are?" As you would. And one speaks about, you know, one, one seeing someone's, you know, physical health seems that he's that that person is well and fine, but he doesn't know what's going inside of them, right? So, so the holy soul, his holiness, basically replied and said, "You look at me and you think I'm, I'm all fine, but in reality, I'm not." And, mm. and 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 what that meant was actually what the promised Messiah is saying, that you know the happiness of a community, of a religious community is the happiness of its leader, right? Their grief is his grief, and I think this yeah. goes back to now because it's so synonymous. It, it goes back to as a Muslim, you know, the second caliph of the Muslim community. He said, "There's a person who, who prays for you, you know, who has who worries for you, just like you know a parent does, you know, about the." about their children's, let's say, you know, um, marriage or something. You know, and smallest of things, smallest of things, right? There's, there's numerous incidents within this community. Some random person, some person from the community writes a letter to his holiness, you know, saying, this is, this is a problem. And he, he gets a reply, you know. And, and we know how many people actually reach out to him, thousands. Yeah. Um, so... I just want to add to that is that um, it's not just once. Yeah. It's every day. Like, not even, I can't even categorically sit there and say it's five times a day. I would say, Hazur is probably yeah, I mean, I mean, so I, much more I mean, than that. Getting 1,500 to uh, 2,000 letters a day yeah. is going over. 
And and I tell you, honestly speaking, is majority of the people that are writing are writing their grief or some sort of a problem mm. to that man. So imagine how how much that person is taking that yeah. upon himself and, and presenting it to God, you yeah. know, prayers and all of these things. So I think, of course, there is that um, for such such a person, there is there is that support, there is that there's the help of God as well. Right? There's a special relationship, but still, he's at the end of the day, he's also a human being. You know, we need yeah. we need to understand. So I always say that just as we share our you know, that's bad news or, or, or you know, our grief. things are grief for them. Yeah. We should also share good news, yeah. right? Uh, in that sense as well. Yeah. Um, but that with that, we're going to our next guest. We have Avril Madro um, on the line, uh, our next guest, who is a professor of geography and environmental science at the University of Reading. Asalaamu Alaikum. May peace and blessings of God be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, when you uh, looked at migrant communities, of course, we're speaking of grief here, uh, the topic of our discussion today. When you looked at migrant communities and their experiences of uh, grieving in England and Wales, how important was it for them to follow what they remembered of how it was done back home? Well, that's interesting. Our studies show that for lots of migrants, there's a really strong sense of wanting to follow the funeral and grieving rituals, mm -hmm. just as they were done, as you say, back home, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, often represented as a way of affirming beliefs and also identity. Mm -hmm. And how accurate were these memories? Uh, well, <laughs> that, 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 was, that was interesting too, because mm -hmm. sometimes they were very detailed, the memories of what had what their families had done in the past and what they remembered from involvement with rituals in the past or family accounts. Yeah. Um, but sometimes there were gaps in the knowledge of rituals because there wasn't the same experience of them mm -hmm. as part of day-to-day -day life. Um, and this is, this is where elders or funeral directors or even the likes of YouTube can be really helpful in terms of filling those gaps. But there's also evidence that some migrant communities sometimes maintain practices from the past that perhaps are no longer continued in quite the same way in the country of origin, um, where perhaps practices, funerary practices, have evolved and changed in some ways. Right, and you found it a really interesting point that you discovered that South Asian men tended to wish for their bodies to be uh, repatriated to their countries of their birth more than South Asian women. Um, so why, why do you think that would be? Well, this is something that came through in, uh, in our study from older participants, those who were in their 50s or, or um, particularly over 60s. Mm. Um, and perhaps here the differences between men and women perhaps reflect men's sense of the traditional thing to do, uh, a way of ensuring best practice of rituals. Um, and in some cases... Uh, it was an expression of a desire that was always held, that there was always planned to return um, uh, to the country of origin in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Whereas by contrast, the women that, that we talked to reported about wanting to have their funeral and their resting place to be principally near where their children live, um, to make it easier for them to organise the funeral and also for them, for their children to uh, sort of for example, visit the grave and, and to pray for them. Mm -hmm. But it's not always clear-cut because some, there were some examples where there were younger women who also, you know, favoured 
repatriation to a, to a, either country of origin or country of heritage. So it's not mm-hmm. always clear cut, but some some very interesting gender differences there. Okay, um, migrants, you know, often also say that they feel disenfranchised as you know if they are not seen. Um, to what extent could the provision of you know burial and funeral services actually change this? Well, the more inclusive of different faith and cultural practices that that uh, public cemetery and crematoria facilities and funeral services are, the more people feel confident about local burial or cremation. And that makes everyone feel that they're being provided for and that their grief and their rituals have a rightful place in society. Right, and... um in what sense did you find uh, migrant communities using funeral practices to create bonds to their lives in the UK? I think that I think that happens in in lots of different ways. It happens amongst community groups who are supporting one another, whether it's through the cremation of um, uh, burial societies or uh, community support in times of bereavement, hmm. sharing knowledge and information. Um, but also the actual act of having a funeral locally um, helps to sort of strengthen connections to particular localities, to particular places. There is a sense that this is an important place, this is where uh, sacred rituals have taken place, Um, and also particularly in association with the remains of the dead as well. If, For example, if there's a grave uh, where parents or grandparents or other members of the community um, uh, have been laid to rest, then hmm. that, that, that gives that sort of sense of an anchor or a, a, a mooring to that place yeah. and helps, helps bring communities together, helps give a sense of strength and family roots in, in, in those localities. Right, and when you, when you looked at collective grief during COVID-19, you suggested it could be used to bring about greater social equality. Could you explain a bit more what you mean by that? Mm, it's a bit complicated. We know that COVID-19 hasn't impacted communities and families equally. But for those who've experienced different sorts of loss, um, including loss of community, uh, as well as through, uh, through bereavement, there has been a, a, a sort of shared sense of loss, a shared sense of, of, um, of, of grief. And I think there's also been an, an increased understanding of what it feels like for people to be separated from wider family and support networks when bereaved and mm-hmm. when going through difficult times. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very common experience for international families, mm-hmm. um, but this was much more widely experienced by the general population mm-hmm. during COVID. And I think when we get those insights through shared experience, mm-hmm. it creates more understanding of the commonality, the, 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 the universality of, of, of loss and grief, and that those can be important steps towards creating more inclusive and more equal yeah. society. Makes sense, makes sense. Um, can I've do, I do have a question. You know, with, when, when you said about the, even differentiated between men and women, uh, especially from the South Asian communities, and they wanted to be 
you know buried uh, in this country and and uh, you know the, the country of their origin um, could it be the women you know they want to be buried near their kids it, was there any element in your research which kind of t- took took that into account i mean in terms of the yeah. reasons absolutely that's really a, a, a key point that came through in in uh, women's explanations of their choices it was wanting to be near their kids but it was also wanting to help their kids, to make it easier for their kids, not to create a financial burden, maybe, um, but also to, uh, you know, to, to make things as easy as possible for them. Mm-hmm. So different, different elements of, of, um, uh, of, uh, of, of mothering going on there, maybe. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Just wanting to make sure that your children are okay afterwards as well. Mm, yeah, yeah. And that, that sort of sense that there could be that continued um, sort of practice of prayer at the grave and so on. That, Absolutely. Um, that, that making those sorts of things easy as well. So interesting interesting when comparing with a, a sort of sense of um, those things being reinforced locally mm-hmm. in the country of residence versus those things being done most effectively in a country of origin or heritage. Thank you so much, Professor Everett. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. And to you. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. We only have about four minutes to go. Um, we've discussed uh, quite a few things today, uh, Fahim. Definitely. Um, just just on a personal point, uh, mm-hmm. my uh, grandfather came from India here yeah. and he came to stay with us and he said to my dad that I'll only come if you make sure that you take me back ah. uh, at the time of my death. So There's a lot of people I've yeah. heard this story about. There's someone who works in our office who works with me and he said he was quite old when his father was, he stayed back in India, you know, when the partition happened. So they moved here, Germany and all these things. So they were getting their father to come here for so long and at the end they were only able to convince him he said that if I were to pass away, um, I would be taken back and buried mm. in in my in 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 my country. Yeah, where I'm from. So I think yeah, there is a, <clears throat> there is that there's that element there of you know belonging and uh, you know being able to be buried in in the place you've spent most of your life and mm. you have that connection with that land as well. Definitely, so, and I think the grief everybody deals with grief in different ways and. Um, I don't think that there is a set like mm-hmm. steps that you have to go through. I know there's the five stages of grief, but for me, I feel like everybody deals with grief in different ways. Mm-hmm. I think that you know some people can be really yeah. heartbroken, and some people can yeah. kind of uh, uh, not want to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I think the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi you know, uh, said something with regards to this. He says rather than symbols and memorials. Um, he says the response from his perspective, the response is a lot more spiritual. And he says, he says, since there is no being other than Allah the Almighty who can deliver one from such worries and concerns, I engage myself constantly in prayers. The foremost prayer that I offer is for my friends to be safe from grief and worry, because the thought of them overwhelms me with anguish and agony. Um, then I pray in general sense that if there is anyone who suffers from some you know some some form of grief or hardships may Allah grant them deliverance my entire effort and every ounce of my passion moves to supplicate before Allah the exalted uh, much hope can be gained from the acceptance of prayer so i think prayer is um, is something that's uh, you know from from a religious perspective pays you know does huge things for people mm. you know um 
truly transforms a per person's you know, ability to actually understand as well. And I think it's a thing of experience. You, 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 can, you can speak about it as, as much as you want, but prayer is something, I think it's something to be experienced. And unless you experience it, one can explain, you know, how it is. And just once I give an example of sugar, right? Who's never tasted sugar in his life? You can tell it's very sweet. It, you know, it's yeah. it's like that. It's like that. But but one who doesn't experience it cannot truly know what yeah. it, what you know what it is, what it entails. Um, but yeah, I mean, grief. Uh, although this might have been, you know, it 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 was a difficult topic, but there was a lot to learn from. You know, from our perspective as well, especially knowing that there is, you know, for people, uh, for people to, you know, help out, and for people that are li li listening in, you know, f um, people that are listening in, you know, that are not religious, let's say, that that they can look into things such as this. They can, you know, we, you know, you you look you look look at the world how they, you know, nowadays want to try out new experiences and stuff like that. Why not? Why not experience prayer? And see what it does for you, yeah. right? Why not experience, experience some something like that? We want to experience everything materialistic, you know. Doing some of the things we can't even name here, but um, you know. And, and I think this is something that we, as as we mentioned, for someone saying that truly, just pray to God. Whether God, if you exist, you know, make 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 yourself apparent to me, make yourself appear to me. Yeah. Right. Uh, just simple, simple as that. I feel like grief impacts you and changes your uh, out outlook. And I think that it's a time to really reflect, really reflect and understand mm -hmm. what do you believe and what do you think. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to the five o'clock news. We'll be back. Uh, we'll be speaking to our next guest. So stay with us here. We should be back soon. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillah rahman rahim in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Welcome back to the second hour of Drive Time Show. But before we actually go into the second hour, we will be, uh, we'll be continuing with the first hour we were discussing. Uh, loss and grief and how to actually uh, actually deal with it um, so before actually going to the news uh, Fahim we were you I think we were discussing something when we we were speaking about um, you know our ability to deal with 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 this yeah. with this grief and and how different people actually you know uh, deal with it in different ways um, now one of the things that you know um, do you ever think about I mean my question would be, do you ever think about like death yeah um does it ever cross your mind surprisingly yeah um because i do try to remind myself that this this mm -hmm. is the only thing that is certain i've i've found it really to be helpful when i feel like a bit of anxiety about something i think that you know there are very few things that you can actually control and if you try to consistently control them mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where trust in Allah comes I think that and then you start to think okay ultimately we're going to be ending up near God if mm -hmm. uh, so for me I think I do think about it quite often mm. uh, not as often as I think I should because you know the question I was saying to you if you found out that you had six months to live mm -hmm. um, 
how would your life change? But then mm. why? What's stopping us doing that now? Like, mm. why is it that we would? We need that. Hey, have you heard about this? I think uh, it may be off topic, but there there is this there is this balance that we need between urgency and patience in terms of, in terms of reaching anything. Mm-hmm. You've got you've got people out there speaking about you know take it slow. You know, you know you've got. <laughs> You've got sorry, but you know, yeah. you've got enough time and everything, and then and then that that actually su- 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 suggests in a way an urgency to yeah because you don't know when you're gonna go. So well, how, how would you approach that? Well, with Islam's uh, teaching of moderation, mm. right? So there's times to be fast and there's times to be slow, and I think that finding that sweet spot in the middle is is what's gonna really benefit you. Absolutely, because um, I think where you need to be fast, you don't waste time. And where you need to be slow, you make sure that you don't just try to tick a bunch of boxes, but you actually yeah. experience it. And I mm-hmm. think that that's a way to get that middle ground. Absolutely. Okay, with that, we're going to our next guest. We have on the line Linda, who is uh, who runs, I think, Good Grief Trust. Yes. Um, we'll be speaking to her now. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace and blessings of God be upon you. And welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hello, it's lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're speaking about grief, and we've been speaking about it for an hour or so. Um, and of course, we've learned a lot, um, but it's 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 not been easy speaking about grief and loss for an hour, um, and actually how to deal with it. Um, could you maybe tell us why, I mean, do you at the Good Grief Trust believe um, that we need you know a grief awareness week, that we need a whole week for that? Well, yes. I mean, to be honest, we could probably use a month. Um, Mm. You know, grief is incredibly complicated and it's very unique to that person. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Good Grief Trust was born out of um, an experience that I had. I lost my partner to cancer eight years ago and and found it very difficult. And I struggled with my grief and I couldn't find support that was right for me. Mm -hmm. And I realized actually the health professionals, the GPs, the doctors, the nurses, the health health professionals, they didn't have a central database to signpost people to support. Because Mm -hmm. when you're grieving, whether you've lost a partner, your parent, your sibling, your friend, your work colleague, every person's grief is completely unique. And we need Mm -hmm. to signpost them to help that is right for them from day one. Mm-hmm. So we started the National Grief Awareness Week, which runs from the 2nd to the 8th of December, to bring the nation together to help and support those people who are grieving. And that could be through baby loss, cancer, mm-hmm. epilepsy, whatever that is, that person needs to know that they're not alone from day one. Um, first of all, our condolences, of course. And also, um, you know, um, it's interesting to me, especially, listening to this and, 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 and we've interviewed so many people that have started great things after a loss and 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 that is so interesting to me uh, that that the great things or good things also come about after you know losing something or grief you know you starting this it's you know, you starting this trust and imagine how many people you would you are helping or would have helped based on that loss where without that loss this may have not been possible so, I mean, it's, it just, perspective of, it's just perspective of looking at things. You. Yeah, no, absolutely. But we meet so many people who have started a charity, as you're talking about now, mm. through the passion and through compassion because they understand the mm. pain 
and the trauma that people can go through when you're when you've lost somebody who's very close to you. Absolutely. And that's why peer support is so so vital for people. But to find somebody who's lost a child, if you've lost a child, can be your lifeline. Mm. To find somebody who's maybe lost a parent or grandparent in the same similar circumstance can absolutely validate your own feelings and your own emotions so it is amazing how many people across the country have started wonderful charities we have over 900 Mm -hmm. support services under our umbrella so please do let people know that the good grief trust is here for anyone grieving under any circumstance definitely that's why we wanted to learn um, a little bit more about uh, your pop-up cafes that you run and how do they actually help with the grieving process yeah so just to sit with somebody, have a cup of tea, have a cup of coffee and a piece of cake, face-to-face is so valuable. And particularly in your own area, when you're grieving, you're exhausted. Mm. It's incredibly draining. And to, to have to travel a long distance to find support is often very, very difficult. And most of us don't need counselling. Um, most of us just need connection with another human being who's been through a similar circumstance. So the pop-up cafes, the Good Grief cafes, are basically out of the community, Uh, We started them uh, Mm pre-COVID. We had to go online and there's still virtual cafes that people can join us from their own homes. Mm -hmm. But just to connect with other people while you're sitting there with a cup of tea and just be able to share your story in a relaxed environment is so, so helpful to people. Because often you don't want to go to a clinical environment. You don't want to go back to the hospital maybe when that person was treated. Mm -hmm. You don't want to go to a hall or something. It's really lovely to be able to just sit with other people who understand and and just share your grief and normalize your feelings. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And um, how useful is is actually, you know, of course, you've you've talked about this. um, uh, If you can elaborate a bit more, is actually speaking to or talking to uh, talking about the person who has actually died, you know, in 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 helping people grieve. It's so important. And let me just read this quote, actually, because this explains why it is so important to say that person's name. So this will help friends and family who are trying to help someone who's grieving. And it says, if you know someone who has lost a very important person in their life and you're afraid to mention them because you think you may make them sad by reminding them they died, Mm. you're not reminding them. They didn't forget that they died. What you're reminding them of is that you remember that they lived. And Mm. that's a great, great gift. So that quote is incredibly powerful because it tells people that actually the people who have died you know, they will be with us forever. Grieving is a process. It's a natural process and we'll have it for the rest of our life. But what mm-hmm. we can do is, is take it through with a more positive and more hopeful outcome. Absolutely. And, um, you know, how should we, uh, you know, as individuals support someone, you know, we see in grief? Because, you know, oftentimes you think, what what should one say, you know, in, yeah. in this time? You don't want to say anything wrong, or uh, although that, that might not be your intention. So what's the best thing, you know, from your perspective to, to say at that yeah, time? Yeah, absolutely. Because we do find it very difficult, don't we? It's yeah. very difficult to find the right words. Mm-hmm. We don't know whether we should do that because it will upset somebody. Yeah. But the worst thing you can do, actually, is not say anything. So basically, Mm. if you don't know what to say, just say, listen, I'm so sorry. I don't have the words, but I'm here for you. Mm. And then just keep messaging people, WhatsApp them, you know, text them, telephone them, Mm -hmm. turn up at the door, maybe with some food that you've made for them to make life a little bit easier. Um, If they've got children, maybe suggest that you take the children out and help them. Practical things are really, really Mm. helpful to people. But just be there for the long term, because after the funeral... After all that busyness and, and everybody's been around, 
that's often the most isolating and lonely time. So it's much nicer if people can just keep reaching out um, and just saying that they're there, really. Thank you so much. And lastly, what other services, you know, can grieving people actually access? Gosh, there is a wealth of services because, as I Mm -hmm. said, grief is unique to them. And we have to listen to the person who's grieving and find out what is right for them. So some people might like just to speak to someone on a helpline. We've got lots of Mm helplines. We've got tailored support. We've got charities. There are support groups that are small. There are face-to-face online groups. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people can go and do yoga or listen to music or Mm -hmm. maybe take exercise out in in nature. All Mm -hmm. those things are really helpful as well. So just to say, come to the Good Grief Trust. Have a look at hundreds and hundreds of all our charities and support services and watch the videos and listen to the stories and hopefully you will find the support that's right for you. Thank you so much, Linda. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And we hope and pray, you know, this this trust actually goes a long way and actually helps continue to help people. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye for now. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. We're not going anywhere until six. Um, we are going to be moving on to the second part of our program where we will be discussing Islam and the West, whether the two are at odds or not. So we'll be back uh, after a short break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. We are back with the second hour, which is starting slightly late, uh, but uh, we are at it now. You're joined by myself, Rahil Ahmed, and Fahim Nasir. Uh, the usual two, you know, presenting on every other Thursday. Yep. Um, we're moving from grief and, uh, you know, uh, dealing with loss. Uh, we're, we're, we're actually moving to, some, you know, a topic that's that's often discussed. If not discussed, then um, it's subliminally suggested. You see it in, in, in your yeah. daily news. You, uh, you know, it's suggested to you what, that, that, that somehow Islam, you know, the religion, uh, you know, followed by was it 1.2 billion Muslims or what, what, yeah. what the actual number, whatever the actual number is, but quite a few people, uh, is actually at odds with the West, um, considering that there are you know millions of Muslims actually uh, living in this con- uh, in 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 the West, contributing uh, and have contributed to the Western civilization. If it you know if if you go back to the um, you know the 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 Muslim rule in Spain and what it contributed to the West and you know we've done numerous programs on that so this next forty five minutes we'll be discussing uh, whether it, that that notion that Islam is actually at odds with the West is holds any uh, you know truth yeah. or not so do give us a call I think that's uh, it might be a bit more of an interesting subject to our listeners zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number you can also hit us on our socials so Fahim where are we going from here so. I think that you can really just just take a minute for okay, our listeners, right? Let's 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 just sit there and just tell me: Do you believe is there some sort of narrative that you think of that you think that the Western uh, West, the West and Islam cannot work together, and mm-hmm. they're at constant odds? Because for me, I feel like that is a inherent feeling that people have because of 
many different reasons, which I'm sure we'll unpick. But yeah. I think that it's like people have this like stereotype in their head that okay, Islam is backward. Islam is all of these other things that it's not compatible with the West, which is the future and, and which is more contemporary. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that I vehemently disagree with. Like, because for me, I think that I can live with all of the values that Islam mm -hmm. teaches me. Yeah. And I have grown up in the West. I, have be I was born here. Yeah. And I feel like some of the British values are really great and mm -hmm. I am proud to be British. But for me, I think that there is this narrative out there which we need to tackle. Absolutely. And I think one of the one of the things that um, is interesting to me, and I think when I when I look at this topic or when I've, whenever there's any discussions, I always begin with, okay, Islam and the West. What is Islam? Okay, it is a religion. What is a West? Exactly. Define it. Yeah. Is it an ideology? What is it? You've got all these different countries. I live countries. in West London. <laughs> 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 no, I'm saying you've got, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, if you go up, uh, let's say, you know, you know people, dialects change, you know, the way, the way we think now, especially now in this day and age, we're a global village, man. Mm. You know, people understand one another and they know, whereas if someone's going to be, you know, a bigot, if someone's going to be, uh, you know, racist or that's what they're going to be. Yeah. No matter what explanation you give, that's not going to change, yeah. right? But we're, we're, we're discussing, you know, of course, we're discussing from the perspective of, okay, let's say, if you're saying, and I think this is something very interesting, and, and, I, and I want to break the ice. If you're saying Western civilization or Western ideology or Western understanding is going to clubs, is, going, is drinking, yeah. is partying, and is all of these things, yeah. then yes, uh, uh, we are at odds with that. Yeah. Yeah. But is this uh, the question? Then would be: Is this something that compulsory to be a good citizen of a country? Yeah. While knowing that the amount of damage alcohol does, especially talking about Qatar and you know yeah. all of that uh, um, issue that brought up, and we did an entire program on that. Actually, mm. if someone's not listened to it, you can go back and li listen to that. Um, you know, uh, women actually saying they feel much safer. You've got mm. people coming out now saying the, the, the families are saying they feel much more safer in these stadiums. Yeah. Um, or, you know, actually, um, you know, uh, going out there and meeting different women or different men yeah. while you're married. Different culture. No, no, no. From my perspective, oh. outside of your marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, Islam does, 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 doesn't support that. Does, does one have to, does, now, as a Muslim, do I have to follow that? No. It goes against my fundamental teaching. So when we're speaking from what are Islamic values? Okay, rights yeah. of God, rights of creation. We often yeah. begin our program, this is the first thing probably our listeners hear, yeah. rights of God, rights of creation. Yeah. And, and we always say that they go hand in hand. Yeah. Right? Rights of God are worship, something very, very much personal to us. Rights of creation, it's doing goodness, doing charity, you know, um, um, planting trees, um, uh, meeting the elderly, um, you know, in care homes. This is yeah. what the community has been doing. Or, and during COVID times, you know, helping deliver uh, essentials and foods, right? I think these are British values from yeah. my perspective. Let, let, let's go out there and, and find, let's say, 10, 10 men who probably, uh, you know, I saw this video um, and, uh, on social media, mm. right? There is a, there's a man sit, sitting there. It's such an interesting video, 20 seconds or so. There's a man sitting there on a bench, probably 92 years of age or something, sitting there just reflecting, enjoying his weather. And this young individual just comes, starts dancing in front of him, yeah. doing all of this uh, you know, um, weird like some uh, TikTok dance. Yeah, exactly. And this person just sitting there, and, and all of a sudden, so, you know, in that video, memories start to come up of World War Two, 
what this person had mm. to go through yeah. in order in order for this <laughs> this country to <laughs> exist. Yeah. And here you've got a nation, or you know, you've got these youngsters who are doing all of these you know weird dances. And yeah. so I'm, I'm just saying, go out there and speak to these elderly, speak to these people, you know, who truly who you know who have lived, who truly understand what Western values are. Yeah. And they will tell you what what they are. They, they are very family oriented people in that 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 still exist in uh, in the West. But I think we are going but, to our first guest, aren't we? Yeah, um, I think we are going to our yes. first guest. Uh, we do have on the line uh, Imam Sabahat Ali, who is the who is a missionary, of course, and he is the editor of the Existence Project under the Review of Religions. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Alaikum assalam, rahmatullah. Peace and blessings be upon all of you as well. Jazakumullah for having me. Jazakumullah for joining us. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, we're speaking of a topic that's, you know, that is not uh, <clears throat> strange to anyone. You know, I was, I was mentioning earlier, it's, it's something that we often discuss and, and it's also something that is portrayed in media subliminally sometimes and often, you know, uh, you know apparently as well. Um, what are your thoughts, you know, on, 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 on the statement that Islam and the West have, uh, you know, more in common uh, when it comes to the notion of equality and freedom than some Muslim countries actually do. Um, whereas, you know, on, on the other hand, the way it is presented is that Islam and the Western civilization is, you know, is, is at odds with one another. Well, this is a very, um, certainly deep question, is far-reaching mm-hmm. and extends um, over swathes of, of time and populations. So I suppose I could take one element of this mm-hmm. um, and try to break it down. Mm-hmm. The first thing that Islam proposes, um, and that is the cornerstone of the entire uh, superstructure that Islam seeks to achieve, is justice. And so insofar as justice is concerned, the hallmark quality of Islam is that the pursuit of truth and leading one's life according to what is true, mm-hmm. um, that is the kind of enshrining principle in Islam. Mm-hmm. When we look at, for example, the actual Sharia of Islam, it's very fascinating to note that Islam has espoused the truth as the single greatest moral principle. Mm-hmm. And there is absolutely no compromise. So, yes, there are certainly compatibilities between the excellences of certain Western countries. And I always hesitate to try to brush the West um, under, under one umbrella, because mm-hmm. I think it's a, a service to, firstly, the, the truth, and secondly, um, it is not... Um, even certain Western countries take some offense, because mm-hmm. when we're in one breath saying Islam and the West, when we look at the historical literature on the sociopolitics of Islam and the West, more often than not, as you rightfully pointed out, there is a deep dichotomy that's Mm -hmm. conveyed, as though they are two polar opposite ends of a spectrum, Mm -hmm. as though right wing and left wing, um, Mm -hmm. something like that. It's interesting that George Washington State University did a study and again, this is not a conclusive end-all to anything, but it's certainly in the right direction. Mm-hmm. The study took on various dozens of countries in the world and analyzed the basic 
tenets of their constitutions mm-hmm. upon which is predicated their society or rather their version of an ideal society it should be said mm-hmm. and then those constitutions were compared and contrasted to the basic constitution that the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam established in medina mm-hmm. which predated mind you the magna carta by about a millennium mm-hmm. and it's quite as you you said it's quite astonishing that not a single muslim country self declared muslim country made it on to the top 50 mm. and when we look at the ones that did it was switzerland mm-hmm. it was sweden it was canada it was japan it was all the countries that also make it to the highest list or the highest parts of lists um that seek to evaluate and identify quality of life mm-hmm. happiness for example this list is quite alarmingly similar to the list that the world happiness report publishes every year mm-hmm. for the happiest citizenry so it really does demonstrate that in so far as the original unadulterated teachings of islam are concerned they are very much um in link with the teachings of certain western countries mm-hmm. because the teachings of islam and i'll close with this statement perhaps the teachings of islam are teachings that human nature espouses intrinsically mm-hmm. and we quote this as an emergent ethic as our philosophers and theologians like to use this term that those things which are eternal realities which demonstrate the truth of any philosophy should come from within the heart of man mm-hmm. of human kind so because islam is a religion of human nature mm-hmm. and it acknowledges the deepest moral ethic so it's not a surprise that 1400 years ago it was spearheading these morals and now we are just awakening <clears throat> to that it's it's very very interesting uh, you know for me list listening to that and actually um i i do want to actually go away from the the questions that we you know that sort of we thought about before and actually to delve into you know the discussions i think we can take you know a, a lot more out, out of that you know when we speak about um the the similarities let's say or you know you you beautifully mentioned how the west has taken up you know those principles um that was established by the holy prophet uh, peace and blessings of allah be upon him um and and of course you know also because uh, I, i might ask two three questions in this um uh, please uh, if i'm able to explain it properly just pick up on those um the, the first thing is you know people may 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 reply to this that isn't truth subjective um you know people you know mm-hmm. to to them truth is you know it's uh, it's not one way you know people take take truth as you know what they understand it to be so so first my question would would, would be that mm-hmm. and the second second question would be um when we say the western western nations have 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 taken up these values and it's 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 very good we feel it we live in this country we experience it, the justice system and all of these things but when we do also see see atrocities happening in in countries in result of the policies of the west let's say how do you as an as uh, you know as an individual reconcile the you know the two i think you've you've uh, asked me two questions that are on <laughs> yeah they are very deep i can understand universe yep in terms of the 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 um, this objection that mm-hmm. there is um no 
objective truth. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid that this is part of a rhetoric mm -hmm. of those who have only taken perhaps a rudimentary sip from the chalice of philosophy. Mm -hmm. All those great philosophers who have guzzled down the entirety of this chalice, or much more of it, have always found objective truth at the bottom of the cup. So, what happens is, I have never heard mm -hmm. a very serious intellectual try to argue, ever, mm -hmm. that truth is only subjective. Mm -hmm. This statement doesn't actually amount to anything. Mm -hmm. I have uh, spoken to many various youth here in Silicon Valley. I've spoken to many youth at Stanford University, from Berkeley University, professors here, corporate you know, um, executives and whatnot. And when I raise this point, they actually normally laugh at this and they say that this is something that has been popularized on social media mm -hmm. and nobody really takes it seriously. And mm -hmm. I'm not just going to leave this as a blank statement. Mm -hmm. What do you mean when you say that your reality is different? If I drove for five minutes, then how much of a difference is there between my reality of having driven five minutes and you, your reality of my having driven five, driven five minutes. The mm -hmm. only thing that can be argued is that you were moving at a momentum that was so extremely um, fast and in the opposite direction that according to Einstein's theory of rel relativity, um, there was a minuscule, infinitesimal difference if we were to measure it with the most sensitive equipment conceivable of some fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. But that's absurd yep. because I still drove for five minutes. So yes, within human beings, our realities, mm -hmm. there, have, there has to be a basis to it. Mm -hmm. And the main argument for this is truth. <clears throat> yep. A person who says that my reality is different or your reality is different, that use of the word reality mm -hmm. demonstrates that the person is not in link with, the, with their own with, with reality. Mm -hmm. Because to say that reality is subjective, I have asked perhaps into the hundreds of people, what do you want to get away with? Like, what are you trying to say? Mm -hmm. You can say that you have a subjective experience of reality, yeah. but you have absolutely no empirical evidence to try to back this, quite frankly, absurd claim that there is no reality. Of course, as human beings, we can only glean so much of the world. Yeah. No one is saying that our optic capability, which is a fraction of a fraction, is 0.00003% of the light spectrum, for example, that we can see. Yep. We're not saying that we can encapsulate all of the light spectrum even. Mm -hmm. But whatever we have been given to perceive of the universe, it is consistent across unless there's a physiological difference. Then finally, I would like to acknowledge that there are some very true problems, but they don't actually make any difference in the application of our everyday life. For example, you and I will never be able to, as we understand it, ever verify whether or not the blue that I see is the same blue that you see. Mm. That's true. That is a real philosophical conundrum and, and, and should be acknowledged. And that's why I don't want to be one-sided about this. But for all means and purposes, it makes no difference. 
whatever you're calling blue and I'm calling blue, let's say you look up at the sky and there's a cone that you have that I don't. And actually, I see a different variation of blue than you do. Mm-hmm. I will never be able to know that I actually see it. Or the statistics, one out of six or one out of eight, yeah. one out of eight gentlemen are, to some extent, colorblind. Let's take that old statistic, right? Yeah. Um, just as, a, <clears throat> as an example. So that's fine. But the fact is that your blue is still blue. Yeah. You still look at the sky <laughs> and you still see the sky. If you call it something different or your cone of cones or your retina or your cornea or your optic nerve or your prefrontal cortex interprets it differently, that does not in any way change the fact that there are eternal truths. Mm-hmm. And the main issue with this subject is why has the subject come up? It's an attempt to try to remove God from the equation. Mm-hmm. Because one mm-hmm. of the attributes of Allah the Almighty in the Holy Quran is Al-Haqq. But he is the unequivocal, unchanging, eternal, and perfect truth. So, to remove this common denominator, people have tried to say that my reality is different, your reality is different, but that doesn't change anything in practical application, and that is the greatest folly of philosophy. Makes sense, yep. So, I think what was the second question? I've, I've forgotten it now. Um, what was I asking? Mm-hmm. You had, I think you had, you had asked... Um, you know, when people see atrocities being committed. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I mean, how do we reconcile the as element a result of, yeah. of policies in the West? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we reconcile when, when we say that, um, you know, they have taken up, and, and we also experience it, of course, those that are living in the West, we experience the justice system and we experience the freedom mm-hmm. of expression, freedom of belief, all of these things which are good. We should, you know, we should cherish it. We, we, we acknowledge it. Um, but then you see, you know, other parts of the world, uh, things happening as a result of uh, you know western policies let, let's say right well in islam mm-hmm. no thing within itself is either good or evil it is only the use or the misuse the alignment or the misalignment of a thing that makes it good or evil mm-hmm. and what you've just said is um you know, exhibit A through Z. A country that exercises freedom within its own borders is free to do so. But when a country feels that it is its duty to go and against the will of the people of another country, go and free them or liberate them, that will naturally raise eyebrows. Mm Mm-hmm. So, in Islam, the very simple thing is that when it comes to goodness or any policy, the right use of that policy is considered good, and the misuse of that same policy is considered evil. And we as Muslims, Mm -hmm. we don't even fight back. If there is a country that is coming and for the sake of my faith, for example, Mm -hmm. wants to exterminate me as an Ahmadi Muslim... I am taught that the earth is vast and I should go and live somewhere where there is peace mm-hmm. rather than fighting back. So these two sides of the equation is the basics of what Islam has to offer, unless I didn't understand your question correctly. No, no, I do understand the aspect of, of, of my, my migration, um, but isn't one allowed to defend? I mean, are, if, we, are we saying one is not allowed to de- 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 defend in the country that they are living in? 
no, I, I had said if because of my faith, okay, yeah, I'm persecuted. Yes, yes. If because of my faith, I'm persecuted. If yep. my country is being attacked, yes. then of course, as a Muslim, I should be at the forefront of defending it in any way I can, and that's the dictate of who I am as a as a as a as a Muslim, mm -hmm. because love of my country is part and parcel of my faith. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, we believe that <clears throat> if a person dies fighting for his or her property, that person is a martyr. If a person dies fighting for his or her country, mm -hmm. then that person is also a martyr. Mm -hmm. So, absolutely. So, would, 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 would it be correct to say that, that it, of course, we, you know, we find a verse in the Holy Quran where, where, where I think the angels, or you know, when they ask them, um, you know, why didn't you migrate? Right when, when when you found this you know earth of God to be so vast, you know for you to mm -hmm. practice your faith, um, mm -hmm. is it is, is is it then to say that you know uh, is it simply just to migrate or is it you you know you've tried to defend yourself but that hasn't worked and now you migrate? Would you draw a diff difference there? Well, this has to do with persecution based on on faith. This mm -hmm. entire equation. Okay. What you're referring to. Yep. If a person mm -hmm. is. If a person is being persecuted and um, uh, disabled or, or um, barred from practicing their faith, then as a Muslim, we try to practice our faith um, maximally. Yep. But when it comes to a point where a person's life is in danger, mm -hmm. then of course a person should do whatever is within their power and we will do whatever is within our power. And mm -hmm. that is why... Yep. Founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who we believe to be the second advent of the Prophet Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, peace be upon him, and who we believe to be the the reformer of all Muslims. Yep. He came and announced the utter extinction of the jihad by the sword, mm -hmm. and he said that that time is now gone, where the Muslims needed to defend themselves with the sword because they were being attacked with the sword. Yep. But in this case, we follow an Imam. This is the hallmark characteristic of a believer, mm -hmm. that he follows an imam who we believe that this person is given understanding of the commandments of the Holy Quran. Mm -hmm. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, also instructed 1400 years ago that when this imam comes, yep. this imam Mahdi comes, at that time, wars for the sake of religion will be abandoned. Mm -hmm. This actually mm -hmm. refers to his instructions, mm -hmm. that he will instruct his followers to not fight anymore. So instead he proposed the jihad of the pen. That is why mm -hmm. we wage an intellectual, peaceful jihad of the pen, mm -hmm. of intellectual dialogue, of academic discourse, of building uh, scholastic bridges. Absolutely. That is our defense. Very interesting. Um, indeed. I mean, and I do want to move on to to another question, which is to do with the trend of you know belief in religion, um, and also you know and, and and God declining and and atheism rising in the West. Uh, well, 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 is that even true? Because I remember reading something from as a Muslim author where where he, he he mentioned that you know we we often speak we we often speak about atheism on the rise, and of course he's speaking in his time. And he says this um, This is sort of a superficial look at the world. There are still more believers in the world than there are those that don't believe in God. Um, and he basically moved on to give an example and he explained that, of course, goodness, you know, is something that's in a way when is you know, something that is normal. Uh, you know, it doesn't really come to surface as much. It's not, it's not, it's not advertised uh, as much. Whereas something that is, um, you know, that is, uh, 
you know, on 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 the other side, or you know, of course, we speak about uh, you know uh, how how you know what sells in media as well, right? Um, so so yeah. so that aspect of it, he he mentioned that is something that's picked up and is is advertised, and and it, it seems as if that is the normal view of the world, or that is something uh, that is trending. Um, is 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 this correct uh, now as well in this day and age? From you know, from your look at and your sort of sort of study into atheism and how it's sort of presented first of all as something that's it's on the rise. Everybody you know is leaving religion and all of these things. And secondly, uh, you know whether atheism is a threat to the West. Whether atheism is a threat to the West. Yep. Well, the first um, that you you mentioned is atheism on the rise. There's absolutely no doubt that it is. Okay. Secondly. If uh, um, we have to look at this within its due context, true. From the perspective of Islam, we believe that God Almighty, His existence has been woven into our very fabric, mm-hmm. and what that means is that the natural state of an of an individual of a person is to ponder and to reflect and think about why he or she exists mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Why are we here? And that is why this concept of our existence, mm-hmm. which is also what the Existence Project seeks to deal with, mm-hmm. is so fundamental to who we are. So everyone has to face that question, do I have a creator? Naturally, mm-hmm. people have over the last many thousands of years looked to religion. Yep. which advertises itself, markets itself, brands itself mm-hmm. um, with the fact that it has the answer. So when people looked toward Christianity in the West, we talk about, we talk about the West, of course. Mm-hmm. So the main religion there up until very recently, even now, was Christianity. Mm-hmm. And when they looked to Christianity to try to quell this conundrum, this quagmire of, of their heart, of their soul, of their mind, yep. they um, were not satisfied. Mm-hmm. The version of God that was espoused by Christianity, modern Christianity, which we believe is a, a, a far cry from the original uh, pure teachings of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, mm-hmm. they presented the picture of a god for example just the other day i was on on a plane ride and a gentleman came and sat with me as a younger university student mm-hmm. um and i remember he had many different rings on and tattoos and he had more piercings than i could count mm-hmm. and so i decided you know to to give him a cheery smile and and welcome him as he was sitting down in the seat next to myself mm-hmm. anyways we got to speaking it was a 90 minute or so flight and when I told him, he, he told me the same thing. He grew up in a Christian household. The concept of God just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. There were too many paradoxes, too many inconsistencies, and his heart didn't accept it. And, mm-hmm. and so he said, you know, I'm not, I, I can't call myself an atheist, positivist atheist. He was a very intelligent young man, mm-hmm. because I don't have any evidence to substantiate my non-belief in God. So I cannot say conclusively that God Almighty does not exist. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I am a very hardened agnostic, meaning that I feel that either... The, it doesn't matter, or you know, if it was relevant, it, it would have made more sense. Yep. When we got to speaking, I told him, actually, this version of God, the, the qualms that you have, Islam resolved them 1,400 years ago, and I saw the look of, of <laughs> unfettered glee on his face, yeah. actually. Yeah. He said, 
these were the main issues for which I abandoned the idea of God. I had no idea mm-hmm. that the version of God that is taught by Islam makes so much more sense. I remember by the time he was leaving, he said, this was the first truly fulfilling conversation about okay. God I've ever had in my life, and I realized I need to look into Islam. So this is, this is just the reality of it. So people's atheism yeah. is also those people who rejected Christianity or any other version of God, even Muslims who yeah. grew up in households where a very hideously disfigured version of God was being taught to them, and they rejected that version of God because it's a, it's a horrific version of God, they actually have taken a step in the right direction mm-hmm. in rejecting the false um, gods. And I think this this is where the responsibility lies. And I think it goes, it's very interesting that that interaction you have, you know, you've had, and and many of us that do, um, you realize that you know this this whole idea that you know Islam and the West, this ideology, because Islam is not claiming that it's it's incompatible with the West at the, at the first place. What it's saying is, as as you were you know beautifully men- mentioning earlier, that it's the faith or it's the religion of nature, and and when you do you know tap into the nature or you know, the uh, nature of that being, you know, that, that fellow human being, and you discuss on, on a human level, you truly understand how much commonality there is, you know, um, and, 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 and you actually find that uh, during the conversation that, uh, you know, one has. Um, moving forward, um, lastly, actually, um, we would love to have you on for, you know, let's say three hours or so, because it's such, such an interesting conversation. Exactly. Um, has you know, a misunderstanding or let's say a misuse of the term, you know, jihad is something that we all know about, uh, played a role or played a huge role in how Islam and Muslims are actually perceived today. I would say that the misuse of the word jihad by Muslims mm-hmm. is what is responsible for all of this. Okay. At the very onset of this great, great misappropriation, adulteration of the term jihad, which happened happened over 120 years ago, 130 years ago. The founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is the first person on record mm-hmm. that brought the West's attention to this gross um, version of jihad that was being espoused on the Afghan frontier. Absolutely, yes. Ahmed of Qadian, peace be upon him, yeah. wrote letter upon letter to the British government, which was the most powerful and organized government at that time, to the Queen. And he said, you are the ones who are capable of nipping this in the bud. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you right now that what is happening, this horrible version of jihad, it is a lie. Take blood is not jihad. To give blood is jihad. Mm. To bring up the sword is not jihad, but to sheath the sword and its place, take up the quill, is jihad. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And he said, I'm telling you, and, and he sent Quranic arguments. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to the British government to equip yeah. them so that they could also, in an organized fashion, educate these Muslims. Absolutely. And, and, and he said, and, 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 yes. please continue. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, I'll be quick. He proposed a two pronged solution. Mm-hmm. which I believe with firm conviction had the British government heeded mm-hmm. this two-pronged solution mm-hmm. and implemented it, we would not be mired in this horrific uh, um, controversy as we are today. Mm-hmm. The first was that the British government should send agents to all religious places of worship 
mm-hmm. and monitor what is being said in the mosques and the churches and the synagogues. After all, if there, I mean, when we read these headings, we hear about homegrown terrorism or we hear about, you know, the idea of radicalists being targeted in these places of worship. Now it's usually online. Mm-hmm. But before it was houses of worship. And then the second part was, he said, that way you'll be able to tell, even if there's a bit of a trend, you can immediately nip that in the bud. As a government, you have to regulate that because that becomes, that amounts to treason and puts people's lives in danger. Mm-hmm. The second thing that he proposed was that for five years, it should be regulated through the legislation that it should become illegal for any religious figure to say anything negative about any other faith yep. on the podium yep. and that they should only say positive things about other faiths so that mm-hmm. their memberships foster love and tolerance. I and mean, this is 120 years ago. We talk about tolerance today. Absolutely. And building bridges today. <clears throat> so, uh, unfortunately, neither of these were heeded. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where we are today. Absolutely, brother Sabhat. It's uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you. And this 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 point that you just mentioned uh, at the end of the program, I think it requires another program in itself. You know, a two-hour program could could be done on this. And and the Prophet not only mentioned that, but he he also pointed out uh, towards a dual effort of you know also of the Christian missionaries at the time who were you know mm-hmm. propagating that 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 element of jihad that was you know being. Uh, you know, uh, being let's exactly. say, you know, uh, preached by the clergy at the time. If, they were supporting it. They were, if they I, were, if I, please. Sorry, if I may, I'm I'm so sorry. I, I it would be a grave injustice. Mm-hmm. I, I intended to also say, and I'll say this in thirty seconds if you allow. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Please. Um, um, I, I intend to say that it was started by, by the Muslims because of their misunderstanding of jihad. Yes, but it has been deeply proliferated first and foremost, of course, as you rightly pointed out, but the Christian clergy, and I almost don't blame them too much because they were trying to uh, evangelize uh, India, and they were rightfully pointing out just how horrible this doctrine is. Mm-hmm. And then finally, in our day and age, it's it's the media. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, Jazakallah. May Allah bless you for your effort and uh, may you have more you know, interactions as, as the one that you had. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. <clears throat> 0208687788 is the number. Uh, this was a very, very interesting discussion um, that we had with Brother uh, Imam Sabahat. Um, it's not the last time we're going to have him on, of course. Um, we're moving straight to our next guest. We have on the line Ramla Malhi. Uh, she's worked on multiple media relations projects as well as social media uh, as well as she I think she's a social media manager uh, she's currently working in education in New York State uh, with the short introduction Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you Thank you for having me. Jazakallah for joining us. Apologies for slight delay. So we're discussing um, this topic, uh, Islam, whether it's at odds with the West. The questions that we we wanted to ask you is, um, what are your thoughts um, on the statement that Islam and the West have more in common when it comes to, uh, sorry, uh, apologies. Uh, We've been discussing, of course, um, there's, there's, there's this topic, but the question that we have for you is, is uh, how addressing myths and and misunderstandings about Islam could actually clear up ideas, you know, some people actually have uh, that Islam is a threat to the Western world. Um, I think it really starts with educating people 
Uh, I know there's a lot of this um, alien threat that the West isn't compatible with Islam, which is not um, obviously true. We have two types of people who are a, educated about the realities of Islam or religion itself. And then um, the second type of is the other people, they don't know anything. So um, the people who are educated are the ones that know what Islam really teaches. And um, they, they want to stop what is, um, Islam is propagating. They want secularism to be something that is um, very well rampant in the West. Uh, they know the reality of Islam and they see that a good part of our youth is becoming empowered and they're not shying away from their true identity these days. Uh, more people are coming out to live a life in the public eye as a Muslim. If we see even in the U.S., there are so many new um, faces who are Muslims are coming into uh, governing bodies in different states. More migration is bringing in more diversity in the West. Um, and it's not, and people are opening up their eyes to learn more about it. And it's not what Islam was depicted as post the 9-11 era. Um, and if you look at comparing societies in the Western countries, Muslim groups have, Muslim youth, I should say, have lower rate of crime, higher education, um, and higher success rate. Um, with backing of their religion and with the belief that God is what is helping them in Western societies. And that is something that um, nowadays people don't want. They want secularism to thrive. So they don't like the idea that Muslims and Islam is something that can um, go hand in hand with a successful civilized society. Mm-hmm. And then there are obviously there are people who aren't educated and they equate ISIS to Islam. So that's another threat to them because um, they think that if Islam is, uh, takes over the West or Islam becomes a prominent religion, it's kind of metaphorical win for the Arab world, mm-hmm. which is obviously not the case because Islam is a universal religion. Um, so I think that's, that's where most of the scare comes in. Right. And so currently, do you think the curriculum is affected by what's in the media? Like, are we sanitizing or presenting idealized forms of religion? Well, definitely. I think everything and everyone is influenced by the media, um, whether it be our ideals, our goals, consumerism, everything is fed to us. We are we're told what success looks like. And if you don't have that, then you're not supposed to be happy, right? And um, yes, what is shown directly affects education because it directly affects the people in power who will in result become our governing bodies and make policies around education. For example, if you just look at the holidays, um, Christmas, Halloween, Easter, those uh, holidays aren't secular holidays, but mm-hmm. they are uh, taught in schools. There are activities around such holidays um, that happen in grade schools, elementary, middle, 
high school. Um, and when it comes to like current events, what the media will say, the youth will go to school and the youth will discuss it with teachers because we think the world is at our fingertips. We do not need to actually open up a credible source of knowledge or open up a book to get accurate information. And we believe that what is on TV, on social media, or what Google says is always accurate. Um, even most teachers, while discussing such current events, don't have the knowledge base to talk about it. Hence, misinformation gets spread in our youth. When we don't teach about the basics of religion in schools, we are not empowering our youth. The main thing, not only for Islam, but all religions in the West, um, is awareness at this time to bring out the true Islamic values instead of what terrorists hijack the religion to be. Mm-hmm. And that does come from schools because that it has to be taught, that has to be shown that how a religion can, or a person who is a religious person can live about a regular life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think we are, however, in the U.S. taking baby steps towards it. Um, For example, like there's many states in U.S., including New York, who have Mm -hmm. recently added Eid as one of the holidays in Mm -hmm. schools. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that we need to incorporate. We need to teach people that um, alienating is not the way of uh, not an answer or not the solution to have acceptance for all. It's more about how um, we Mm -hmm. learn and accept each other's differences. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure uh, having you on, uh, you know, explaining and answering our questions. Jazakallah. Thank you. Thank you so much. 0208687 is the number. We only have a minute or so to go. So we are coming to the end of the program. Um, So we have, I think, come to this realization that no, Islam is not at odds with the West. Rather, um, Islam is has a lot to contribute and it has contributed. And I think uh, two things I do want to point out before actually going. Uh, uh, there, There is an address uh, delivered by His Holiness, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, specifically on this topic. And um, we should have discussed it. Uh, we should should have d- um, discussed that a lot more, but due to the time, we, we weren't able to. Uh, the topic is the clash of civilizations between Islam and the West. Um, and this was delivered in, uh, it was a historic address in, in German capital. Um, I think this was back in 2019. On October 2019, and with where His Holiness spoke about how the 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 Islam the the, the Western values are you know are rooted in religious tradition and its culture. So uh, this is something that one can listen to back, and as as well as you know various articles on uh, other you know Ahmadiyya platforms such as Al Hakam. There's a there's an article published on King Charles' views on Islam, where he speaks about this very topic: how Islam contributed to the uh, Western civilization. Um, so we ha- we are coming to the end of the program now. Uh, Fahim, any last few words? Final thought: Talk to an MD Muslim, and they can tell Absolutely. you about it. Yes, engage. I think engaging is 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 one of the most uh, you know important things that we need to do. Just as Imam Sabat had this you know in- interaction with the youth, so don't take anyone to you know be a stranger. Just you know, ask re- them. Re- is reach it, out. Is Absolutely. Is it at once? Absolutely. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.